I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Tom McKinnon. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, June 14th, 2010. Coming up, we talk with Frank Barnes about recent studies of cell phone safety and cancer risks. Holding a phone away from you fine one time and you're standing next to a filing cabinet, it's reflected back and you get it all coming back at you. So it depends on the details. And we have some good news on the hazardous waste front. Do you know what to do with toxic chemicals in your home? Again, with a recent with a look at some recent news in science. The common view of the solar system is that many of us learned as children was nine planets in an asteroid belt, and we imagine that everything just formed the way like that in the beginning in exactly the locations we see them today. Now it may be that every aspect of that view is wrong. First came the demotion of Pluto, designating it as a dwarf planet because it is so small. Now astronomers have set their sights on Mars, asking, why is it so small? Because any formation models of the solar system result in a Mars being much larger than it actually is. Well, a team of researchers led by a bolder scientist may not only have an explanation for why Mars is smaller than expected, but also explains other features of the solar system. Kevin Walsh of the Southwest Research Institute's Boulder office and his colleagues have published a paper in the journal Nature that says Mars was effectively starved early in its formation. In their model, as Jupiter formed, Jupiter slowly migrated toward the Sun due to the natural drag on it by the gas and disk of materials that still orbited around the Sun during that early epoch of planet formation. In the course of this inward migration, Jupiter cleared out so much of the material where Mars would eventually grow. Then, when Saturn formed, that changed the dynamics, forcing Jupiter to migrate out again, leaving just scraps and leftovers for an anemic Mars to form. Another result of their model is that when Jupiter migrated out, it also scattered some rocky debris from the inner solar system and icy debris from the outer solar system into the region of where we now see the asteroid belt. And that mix of different types of icy and rocky asteroids predicted by the model is exactly what we see today. So, rather than thinking of the solar system as a calm, serene place where planet forms where we see them now, perhaps school kids will learn that the early years of the solar system was more like a cosmic pinball machine. With Boulder pondering taking over its electrical utility, the White House made an announcement that should be of high interest. Yesterday, Secretary of Energy Stephen Chu and Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack presented a report titled, Building the 21st Century Grid. The report states that the smart grid is central to U.S. economic competitiveness and a cleaner energy system. The White House expects to devote at least $250 million to modernizing the grid in rural areas. And its budget for the next year calls for the creation of a Smart Grid Innovation Hub Research Center. The report also says that the White House's top goal for the Smart Grid is to give consumers access to energy information. Further, it will provide security, standards, and a process to assess the cost-effectiveness of infrastructure investments. The director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, John Holdren, said that the U.S. economy requires a more reliable energy system to manage stresses on the grid, such as outages and peak time demand. 
He also pointed out that new technologies, such as electric vehicles and home energy monitoring and more renewable energy, requires planners to reimagine how the grid works. You can Google Building the 21st Century Grid to get an electronic copy of this report. And that report may make for some informative reading in preparation for a couple meetings this week. Tonight, June 14th, the Boulder City Council will hold an Energy Future Study Session where staff and consultant team will report their findings regarding Boulder's possible municipalization of the electrical utility. The meeting will be in the City Council Chambers at the Municipal Building at 1777 Broadway tonight from 6 to 8.30 p.m. There will be a follow-up meeting two weeks later for community feedback. Then, this Thursday, June 16th, Clean Energy Action Group will have a meeting about Sustainable Municipal Utilities, a user's manual, presented by Baird Brown and Christopher Brent, lawyers in the Environmental and energy practice groups of the firm Drinker, Biddle, and Wreath. The meeting will be held at the West Boulder Senior Center at 909 Arapahoe Street in Boulder. Refreshments at 6.30 p.m. and the presentation from 7 o'clock to You're tuned to KGNU's How on Earth. I'm Tom McKinnon. We have with us in the studio Jennifer Shriver, a senior hazardous materials specialist with the Boulder County Hazardous Materials Management Facility. Jennifer, welcome to KGNU. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. Jennifer, I understand you have an exciting uh, announcement about the facility. Yes, and the announcement, which some of your members may be aware of, is that our new facility is open. And we're very excited and pleased about that fact. Okay, and you've been closed for about four months, so it must be uh, getting a little backlog of material coming in? Yes, we are. It has been pretty busy. All right, well, let's start off just to tell us where your facility is located and, and when can people drop by. Thanks for asking. So our location is at 1901 63rd Street. We're on the same campus as the Boulder Recycling Center, which many people have been going to for years. Our building is located just to the west of that main recycling center, the drop-off center. And when you come in that main driveway, you'll see signs to our hazardous materials facility. We are open Wednesday through Saturday, 8.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. So our new facility allows us to have extended hours, and we're really happy about that opportunity to serve people better. Okay, and I dropped by the other day, and I can say it's an entirely pleasant and quick experience. You're, you're in and out in about, about five minutes. Um, so what sort of materials uh, do you accept? We take pretty much anything you would find under your kitchen sink, in your garage, um, used motor oil, antifreeze, pesticides, and yard care products. And then in Boulder, we do have a lot of uh, researchers, chemists, professors, people who have set up some little uh, experimental center in their garage and We can handle all that kind of material as well. Okay, so what's it going to cost to uh, drop off a carload? Well, this is a a nice example of government at work. This service is free. We gratefully accept donations, but the service is completely funded through our uh, county taxes. Okay, and as I understand, uh, you not only accept uh, deposits, but uh, also uh, withdrawals. Uh, Tell us about your uh, renewable product, reusable products uh, program. Thanks, Tom. That's a great way of thinking about it as withdrawals. Whenever we get material that is still reusable and that we consider is safe for people to use, we have a 
a good amount of shelf space. I think we have about 100 feet of space for reusable products. So these include auto care, motor oil, um, yard and garden care products, home maintenance, caulk, um, and as well we have a good supply of latex paint, oil stains, and a special area for hot tub chemicals. Okay. And very briefly, in about 30 seconds, can you tell us uh, wh- where it all goes? It comes into you, and um, you're not throwing it out the back door, obviously. <laughs> yes. No, we're definitely not doing that. Um, we recycle as much as we can. Our facility is within housed within the Resource Conservation Division, which runs our county recycling efforts. So we are able to fully recycle motor oil and antifreeze. Um, other materials, we recycle as much as we can, and then some materials are safely incinerated. All right. So can you give us uh, the, your uh, your web address for people to get yes. more information? Absolutely. www.boulderrecycles.org. All right. That was Jennifer Shriver of the Boulder County Hazardous Materials Management Facility. If I ever get stranded, I'm never alone. What would I do without my cell phone? Talking to my cell phone. You're tuned to How on Earth, KGNU's Science and Technology Show. I'm Joel Parker. You've probably heard the news. The World Health Organization has officially listed cell phones as a possible carcinogen. One expert who's not surprised at the designation is University of Colorado Distinguished Professor Frank Barnes. For decades, Barnes has cobbled together hard-to-find research dollars to study the biological effects of magnetic fields and radiation, including cell phone radiation. In 2008, he chaired a National Research Council report that called for more research into the health effects of all kinds of wireless technologies, including laptop computers, wireless phones, and cell phones. Up next, Frank Barnes talks with How on Earth's Shelley Schlender about cell phone safety. Frank Barnes, do you use a cell phone? Yes, I have it off most of the time because I don't want to get that many more calls. I want to be out of communication. (laughs) Well, you personally are not that scared of cell phones. No. Do you think that they are guaranteed to be totally safe? No. Say that again. No. The answer is we don't know whether they're safe or not. The fundamental reason is we can't prove they're safe against those things we haven't thought of. The biological system is very complicated. Just because you have a biological effect, it's not necessarily a health effect. High blood pressure is bad for you, right? What happens when you start to exercise? Your blood pressure goes up, but exercise is good for you. So you've got to be very careful about all the details in order to say whether you've got a problem or you don't have a problem. Now, whether we will find something that changes the way one outlook, and particularly with respect to cancer, I don't know. You know, we have some new data, which I really don't want to go into detail on, that says... Yeah, there's some interesting things to look at here, but they have to be repeated by other people. They have to be done very carefully. Well, it's just plain hard. That's all there is to do it. It is hard. We know that there are other scientists who have national reputations who have noticed that there can be things like DNA damage from radiation waves that are similar to cell phones. Dr. Lai and Henry Singh out of University of Washington have a study from a long time ago, where they were able to see that there can be DNA damage. Now, whether that study's been replicated or not, or whether there has been funding 
to allow it to even be tried to be replicated outside of industry studies? That's hard to say. To my knowledge, it's not been replicated. I'll give you another example a different way. One study that was done in Germany at 50 hertz showed an effect. They did not get it when they tried very carefully to reproduce it in Battelle in Northwest. They were using the same strain of rats, but from different nurseries. When they redid the study with the rats from the same nursery, they got the same results. All right? So here, they, I think they were sprig dolly rats or something like that. Everybody thought they were doing the same thing. It turns out there was a difference they hadn't picked up. All right, you're saying that they were sprig dolly rats, which is basically one of the most common strains of rats used in laboratory experiments, but they came from different places on the face of the earth, and even though they had the same genetic makeup, the fact that they came from different places changed the experiment. I don't know enough genetics to say whether they were absolutely identical or not, but there was a difference that people hadn't expected that led to the difference in the outcomes. Who funded each of the studies? Because there have been charges in cell phone radiation studies that if it's a study that's funded by the industry, say Motorola, quite often the results will say no effect. If it's an independently funded study, statistically it's more likely to say there is some effect. Statistically that may be true, but I've done some work with the people at Motorola, and as far as I can tell, everything was reported absolutely honestly. Now, with the way you design the experiments, some experiments are more likely to show something than some others. So I don't have any problem with the studies that I have gone through that have been industrially being honest results. They not necessarily investigated some of the parameters that I might think are important or other people think are important. So one's got to be very careful about that. And yet you, despite saying that it's an awfully complicated area, have been saying we need more studies about the health effects of cell phone radiation. Well, I think that's because I think I see some things to look at. But I can give you results, people, members of the National Academy, that say no more money should be wasted on this. We haven't seen anything until you get something that's different. Forget it. You've seen some things that you think should be looked at, like what? Some of the things that we've seen that lead to a mechanism dealing with the free radicals. For example, we have shown that if we cancel out the Earth's magnetic field, we're changing the growth rates of two kinds of cancer cells and doing nothing to a third one. When you say you cancel out the Earth's magnetic field, how do you do that? There are two ways to do it. One is we generate a field that's equal in opposite direction so that it cancels. The other one, we put it in a mu metal box and we cut the Earth's magnetic field by more than a, well, roughly a factor of 100. Does this have anything to do with cell phone radiation or is this just looking at how magnetic things can affect cells? It has to do with it because it shows that we're involved with the magnetic field at levels that are low. What we guess we're doing is we're increasing the barrier from the transition from a singlet state to a triplet state, which I know doesn't mean much to most of you. But there is a corresponding transition that could be excited by radio waves that would change the lifetime and therefore the amount of free radicals that are free to float around in the body, and we know that free radicals do things. Okay, let me see if I'm understanding the experiment you've been doing. The experiment you've been doing is canceling out the Earth's magnetic field. That's a change. That's something that bodies and cells are not used to. They've been immersed in this 
magnetic field. So you've changed what they're used to. And you're seeing it changes how their free radical formulation responds. We're changing growth rates, which is what we have done. And we have some data that shows we're changing free radical concentration. And you're guessing that if this happens when you zero out magnetic fields, it may be that changing the fields that we're in, including the radio waves we're around, might change how we're tuned also. Yeah, that's pretty close. And then there's the question of whether or not we always are better off when we change free radicals up or down. There's questions about that, too. Oh, yes. And then where they go, if you've got them, what they do to the biological process, and then what is the feedback in the body that takes care of this, because you have that fluctuating all the time. You can have a problem like the straw that broke the camel's back. Under one set of conditions, it does nothing. Another set of conditions, it does something serious. There's a lot of variables. We don't know. Do you realize how frustrating this is for anybody who wants to find out an answer about how often and how long they should be having a conversation on this convenient thing called a cell phone? Yeah, I agree. But there are a lot of things we don't know. And we don't live in a risk-free world. It's a question in my mind, not is it safe or not safe, but what level of risk are you willing to tolerate? Well, I would say at this stage of the game, the risk is likely to be a relatively small number. Have we had cell phones long enough to be sure about that? No, because the latency, for example, on brain tumors, I've seen numbers 10, 20 years. All right, let's suppose it's 20 years. We haven't had cell phones that long. Besides that, the frequencies, the power levels, the modulation techniques have all changed. The modern cell phone emits less than the old analog cell phones that we first started with. Okay, let me see if I'm understanding what you've just said. The latency period for cancer, that means the time from when something insulted a cell to start the damage going toward brain cancer, for instance. The hit that gets the brain cancer started can be as long as 20 years before it finally shows up. And we haven't had cell phones very many in the last 20 years, so we really don't know on that one. Yes, you're absolutely right. All right, and also cell phones have been changing. Yes, cell phones have been changing. And you like to have a cell phone that you don't have to charge very often. And so people, have, there's a big premium on making them more efficient and radiating less, less energy. Well, if they radiate less energy, will that solve all the problems? Or is there another aspect of cell phone radiation that might matter just as much as how much radiation they're giving out? The answer is we don't know. Do you realize how many times you've said we don't know? No, but uh, it's a lot. <laughs> okay, well, I'm holding an iPhone right now in my hand. The FCC has reported that you can look on the back of a cell phone, probably with a magnifying glass, and find the right numbers to look it up on a chart to see how intense the radiation is from your cell phone. Would that make a difference about the safety of the cell phone? We don't know. But the thing is, that number is going to change depending on how far you are from the base station, what other traffic is going on, and so forth. So that number is going to go up and down all the time. What about if I take the headphones and plug it into my cell phone there? Will that protect me more from the cell phone radiation? The farther you get away from the radiating body, the smaller the energy dose you get into the body, okay? So... If you hold it away from your head or you've got it sitting on the desk next to you or something, you're going to wind up with less of that energy getting into you. 
you know, I've read some reports that say that some of the stuff that might be hazardous can travel up the wire. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is true. Sure. Some of it can go up the wire. Some of it, you've got to look at all the details as to where things go and say what the numbers are. For example, holding a phone away from you fine one time and you're standing next to a filing cabinet and it's reflected back and you get it all coming back at you. So, again, it depends on the details. And, and we're actually not just talking about cell phones, are we? Because there are laptop computers, there are wireless phones, there are radios, there are TVs getting signals. Yes, you're right. We don't know if they're totally safe. Who's most at risk if they're not? I don't know that we know, but you would probably assume that people that have other problems. You know, they're like, if you're old and sick, if you're very young, various people whose body's defense mechanisms are either stressed or not as well developed would be cases where my first guess is where you'd look. If you had a grandchild who had access to a cell phone a lot, would you suggest, why don't you stay off the cell phone some? Well, my general conservative position would be, you know, use it when it's important. Don't use it for a whole lot of gossip and chit-chat, whatever. In other words, I'm perfectly fine with my two grandchildren having a cell phone and using it to check in at home and say, all right, I'm on the bus or I missed the bus or whatever. I've got no control over what happens, so what Grandpa says may or may not make any difference. But my recommendation is, no, they don't spend hours a day on it. It's mostly just because we don't know what the answers are. I mean, if you're going to, I like to ski, for example, all right? You know it's risky, all right? It's worth it for me. I enjoy it, all right? So it's, I think the cell phone, uh, all right, it's probably, if anything, a low-level risk, all right? Use it when it makes sense to use it. Well, how about my sons who don't have landlines? They just have cell phones. They do a lot of business on their cell phones. If it's sufficiently valuable, okay, you're taking a risk. We don't know how big it is at this stage of the game. So you'd say at least use headphones. I could say that. That wouldn't be hovering too much to say, well, guys, maybe use headphones. I don't know how much in, that would actually improve things for them. You know, it, again, it's it's what's your risk tolerance. In other words, are you going to drive home tonight? Are you going to pick your kids up from school and take them back? We lost a good pair of friends of my daughter's when a fellow was got mad, was drunk, drove across the highway and wiped them out. They were doing absolutely nothing wrong on a four-lane road, and the guy came across the road and wiped them out. So we take risks every day. We don't live in a risk-free world. So I think you don't want to put this in the no-risk category, but where you put it in the table and what risk you're willing to tolerate is, is very much a personal decision. Thanks to Shelley Schlender for that report. Frank Barnes is a distinguished professor at CU Boulder. He's an internationally recognized expert on the biological effects of wireless radiation. You can hear the extended version of this interview on our website, howonearthradio.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show producer was Joel Parker and engineer was Tom McKinnon. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music from Victor Wooten and Gustavo Santanala. 
Visit our website at howonearthradio.org. While you're there, you can subscribe to our podcast by hitting the iTunes button. And for you musicians out there, the contest for our theme song is still accepting entries through July 12th. More information is on our website at howonearthradio.org slash contest. Questions? Comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Tom McKinnon. And I'm Joel Parker.